Hey guys, this is Marcel from the Picable Radio. Today, I have the honor to have Patrick Schabo with me. Patrick works for the Luma Institute, a training provider that enables companies and individuals to be more creative. He teaches design thinking, and in this interview, he gives us an introduction into the world of design thinking. We talk about creative problem solving, visual languages, and also like what it means to have really the customer in the center, in human-centered design. But first of all, let me introduce to you Patrick. Patrick grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, before he then worked in Japan for a while and moved on to Vietnam, where he worked in Saigon. In Saigon, he got in contact with the RMIT University and through that found his way to Australia. He works today in America as well as Australia as a trainer for design thinking, runs a meetup in the Melbourne CBD and is a great guy to meet every day. We give you a step-by-step -step introduction to design thinking. Well, we help Henry Ford to build a better car as well as explore why the iPod 1 was important but not great. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Patrick Schabo from the Luma Institute. Patrick, thank you very much for joining. Um, how I pronounce your surname? Patrick Sharbar? Yeah, that's that's probably Ooh, as I good as, as I could ever ask for it. Sharbar. Sharbar. Yeah, right. is how it is. Um, it looks more difficult than it is, actually. Nice. So, Patrick, we, we met like two days ago at the last conference, LAST stands for Lean Agile System Thinking yeah. Conference. How did you find out about the conference? I organize a, a local meetup here in Melbourne um, for design thinking. It's called you know, Design Thinking for Business Innovation. And uh, a few weeks ago, I got an email from one of the organizers, Craig Brown, and he was asking me if I'd be interested in talking about design thinking at the conference. And I didn't know anything about the conference, um, but I looked into it and I had a great little meeting with Craig and it sounded like it was, you know, credible and something that, um, that I might, you know, enjoy participating in because I've obviously not Australian, I'm American and I've only been here for a while. And, you know, any chance for me to, um, get to know people around here and, um, uh, just, you know, get to be part of the, the local um, community a little bit better is great so I said yes and it was a great decision for me and it was a great workshop so you had like two hours there yep two hours which is not of course not even close to enough time yeah but you did like I was in the room there and you like loaded up the room I was hoping that you have any voice left because <laughs> I had the strong hopes that we do this interview that was easy two hours <laughs> oh man that, that's actually quite easy uh, our, our normal workshops when we're doing design thinking, which I, I work, uh, a lot of the work that I do is with a, an American company called the Luma Institute. Yeah. And they're based out of Pittsburgh and they, um, work with companies and teams and organizations all over the world to equip, uh, you know, members of those organizations and teams in, in design thinking, how to, how to use these tools to be better creative problem solvers and, you know, better at innovation. Um, and I can talk more about that in a minute, but yeah. uh, our, our, the workshops that we do are typically two days. We spend two full days and they're walking people through all these different, very helpful methods and, and tools for, um, for, using, for, for using design thinking um, at, at this. And I only had two hours mm. and I said, all right, well, what can I do in two hours? And um, 
so I was really happy to, to make the best use of that. And I'm, I'm glad that we had a great turnout. It was, you know, I, I didn't know if we were going to have nine people or five people. Or it turned out we had more than 50 people at yeah, each one. Yeah, the room was packed. Yeah. It was really bossing. And we had worked yeah. in parallel, running from group to group. I think you had five parallel workstations. Like six, work six, six the second day, yeah. yeah. That was amazing. I, I was like, you were like shouting across the room <laughs> yeah. to, to get everyone... Like but I love that. Step, yeah. I really love it. You know, yeah. that's that's part of the that job that I really enjoy is being in a big group of people like that. Yeah. And normally we're working with a group of about 20 people. And there's usually two facilitators with those 20 people, yeah. which, you know, of course, gives you this real hands-on, very um, individualized, immersive experience. Um, it's a little bit more of a challenge when it's just one person working with 50. But, you know, the, the, the principles are the same. Um, it means I can't spend as much time up, you know, right there in with everybody, helping them through these, you know, affinity clustering and and the creative matrix and, and all the other methods they're using. But, you know, the, the principle is the same. And um, it's a ton of fun working yeah. with a big group like that, especially when you can see that they're enjoying it, which they usually are. Mm -hmm. So for me, like, as, as feedback, I can tell you, like, people came back to me. It's like, oh, my God, have you been to this workshop? I was like, yes, I have. I was with you in the room. <laughs> and they were completely engaged. I didn't know That's that. great to hear. And the people who were standing with us, I was like, no, what was it? And it's like, oh, you have another chance. Go tomorrow. And they all went to the next day to the That's second great. one. So That's it's like that really hit. And, um, like, it's, it's a bit of a buzzword, of course, right now, this design thing, even if it's mm. longer around. Um, let's explore that in a minute. Um, but am I not sure whether you have heard a previous episode? I'm really interested to start like, like at the beginning, where are you from, mm. who you are and mm. what, like, basically let's trace back what brought you into this room here in this lovely apartment. Like, yeah, um, it's, uh, I'm not, I'm, I can't promise it's going to be the most Let's interesting go back to story. Childhood. But yeah, love to back to my childhood. <laughs> Come on! Wow, God. Well, you know, I was born a, a poor black child. <laughs> no. I um, I'm from I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, um, and so I'm a I'm a son of the South, uh, and uh, my parents were from the Deep South. They're from Mississippi. Um, my dad was uh, uh, from near uh, near New Orleans, Baton Rouge which is the capital, I think, of Louisiana. And they moved to um, to Charleston, where he was uh, at the Medical University of South Carolina there. Um, and I, I worked in um, in journalism for a long time. I got a, a degree in biology, which I thought might lead me into medicine. And then I realized right before I graduated that I didn't ever want to work in medicine, and I didn't really want to work in a lab. But, you know, I always retained that... the, the, the a love for science and I still have that, you know, this idea of sciences and, and I'm, um, so there's this half of me, which is sort of a, a very methodical linear thinker. But, um, I, I also wanted to be a writer for a long, long time. And after I graduated with a degree in biology, I, um, went after a master's degree in journalism and mass communications. And I got that, that degree, in the uh, in the early nineties, that was and in Charleston. At that was in South. It was in South Carolina. South Carolina yeah, it was yeah. the University of South Carolina, um, which has a good journalism program. And and uh, and I worked um, as an editor and a writer in magazines and and um, newspapers uh, around there. And in the early dot com area, the first dot com boom, 
Um, I worked with a technology that today would be known as uh, QR codes, mm-hmm. but this is sort of pre-smartphones, and so we worked with a little tool that we distributed at all the radio shacks in America. You could get this little pen that you could swipe across the code, and it was very involved, and it was just ahead of its time. And um, in that first dot-com boom, uh, we, we thought we were going to make it big, and then 9-11 happened, and then, you know, of course, the bottom fell out of the technology market and um and then i went back into journalism um i had had a fun little stint doing that um but in 2007 i was sort of i was you know living back in my hometown and i wasn't really crazy about charleston's a wonderful place it's one of the literally one of the best cities on earth Mm -hmm. it's just a fantastic historic cultural um city with you know great beaches and great food but it was my hometown and you know well it can't be it's my hometown (laughs) yeah and I just wanted, I, I, I felt that I needed something more. I, I, I felt that I needed to surprise myself. And so I had an opportunity to move to Japan. And um, and, and so I did. I, I quit my job. So what was the trigger that, that left, like, surprised you, like, that, you, that moved, like, that you decided I go to Japan? Probably the trigger was me turning 40. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh I guess of all the ways that people can manifest their whatever it is, the feelings that they have about turning older, um, maybe one of the, the the less painful ones is actually picking up and traveling and, and doing that. And, and, and um, it worked out really well. Uh, I had a friend who had an apartment that was sitting empty because he'd gotten married. And, and I thought this was going to be a three-month trip. And this is, in, uh, this is in summer of 2007. So I went to Japan and spent um, three months there and just absolutely fell in love with it. And as the date got closer and closer for me to return, I realized which, I didn't really want to. Which part of Japan? I was in very rural Japan on the west coast of oh. Japan. Um, sort of, you know, if you look at Japan directly west of, of Tokyo in a little town called Fukui, mm-hmm. which there's no reason for any traveler ever to go to. There's just nothing there. The best thing you can say about Fukui, because it was bombed to smithereens during the war, because it was a big industrial production area. But the best thing you can say about Fukui is that it's near a great little town called Kanazawa, which has a wonderful garden, uh, one of the apparently one of the top three most famous gardens in Japan, um, and and that's really nice. But I loved being there, particularly because it wasn't big town. Japan. I loved being in a place where nobody spoke English and I was completely adrift. I had no, I I couldn't fall back on, you know, all those, everyone who wants to cater to Western sensibilities because there was none of that there. And in truth, there's very little of that anywhere in Japan. Um, But particularly in the, in the rural Japan. And I, uh, I, I liked that. I liked, you know, having that immersive this in in the culture and that's what i really loved about it and you know i just love the the history of japan which goes back thousands of years and it's still very present in in the modern day and um the the history and you know and and so many aspects of the culture which i found incredibly foreign and also you know fascinating and the food is fantastic and the people are just so uh, amazing and um it was just, uh, uh, I'd never lived abroad before. And so this was, you know, the idea that every single day I, I saw and learned something utterly new 
was uh, great for me. So I'm just wondering, I traveled with uh, four good mates um, Japan for four weeks. Mm. And opposite, I I didn't really like it. Yeah. Because it was, for me, it was too packed. But all the things you just, like, especially like Osaka or Tokyo, mm. it was too hot, too humid, and it was like super packed, and the people were too busy. So it was this very, um, like, you couldn't connect with anyone. You yeah, were this yeah. foreigner. But all the things you said, just, it's a very interesting thing, because if I would go to the, like, out of the city... Then I, you can have like then I could maybe have the same experience. So there's yeah. a, there's an interesting point. Just go out of the city. Yeah, there's like often this difference between the capitals in yes. the country and the countryside. Yeah. So it makes complete sense. I think that's probably true almost anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I was in Japan for a year, and part of the reason that I stayed there was because the global economic downturn happened. You know, the, the American, American housing market collapsed while I was there and I decided to stay, which I was very happy to do. Um, but I was, I was in Japan for a year and then I, I didn't really have a, a, a career as such. I was teaching English and I was working on a book that wasn't really going anywhere. But after a year, I, I left and moved to Vietnam because I had, um, I w really was just traveling through Vietnam on, on the way to a, a friend's wedding, which was in Bali. And I went through and I had some high school friends who were living in Saigon. And I stopped in Saigon and had a great time, you know, hanging out with those guys. And um, one of them had a um, had been restoring these old vintage Vespa scooters <laughs> for years and had sold you know, several hundred of these. And the the Vespa scooters had this fascinating history in Vietnam because of the French colonial occupation, and you know, it was uh, it was a way that all the Vietnamese people got around for the longest time up until the war. Um, and then, of course, after the war, they were cut off from all the global markets. There was nothing. You know, there were no motorbikes that were getting in or out. Nothing got in or out. And they became really adept at maintaining these old bikes from the 60s and 70s. And, you know, these were the bikes that were in Roman Holiday, bikes that are in Quadrophenia. I mean, just gorgeous uh, retro, you know, styled uh, bikes from the from the um, what they call the golden age of the of the Vespa, and there were just hundreds of the thousands of them around Vietnam, and and my friend had been selling them. So he, this friend is from Japan. Or? He, he, this friend is uh, an American friend right. from Charleston, also yeah. that yeah. I went to high school with. Yeah. And uh, and when I got there, these bikes were just getting suddenly getting a little bit harder to find, and he said, you know, what can we do? Is there something we can think about? that we were a way that we can use these bikes that wouldn't be getting rid of them because they're becoming much harder to find. And we hit on the idea of what if we, what if we did tours on these bikes? You know, we've got all these foreigners coming in wanting to do tours and at that time in 2008, I guess this was it's very hard to find tours that were designed for, to, to, to really meet the expectations and needs of Western and foreign visitors to Vietnam because they were all run by Vietnamese people. And, but the, nobody was taking into account the actual needs of the, of the people who were traveling to Vietnam because, you know, Vietnam people were, they're very proud of their history, but they also want to put their history behind them because it's been a difficult history. They've been occupied by, 
you know, China for a thousand years by, you know, they had a difficult World War II. They were occupied by France for the longest time. Um, and uh, China tried to reinvade again in, in, in the 1970s. And then, of course, you know, there was the awful history of World War, I mean, uh, of the Vietnam, Vietnam War. War. Yeah. And so so they really want to put that history behind them and focus on, on looking ahead. But that's not what foreigners want to see when they come to a and do a tour they're very interested in the history but when they people would come and do a, a tour in vietnam all they get is talk about what what vietnam is like now and what, what's going to you know all these beautiful the or not necessarily beautiful but these big buildings that are being built mm-hmm. and there's no history there mm-hmm. and we realized that we could take these vespas and create this more authentic sense of history um, and of, and of course you have English speaking tour guides, which is very helpful. And so we did that and it was a huge success called Vietnam Vespa Adventures and it's still running. And, uh, um, I was with the company till 2011 and, uh, and it was just, a, it was a ton of fun. We, we ran, we ran tours around Saigon and we even ran these multi-day so you, tours. You lived in Saigon or which yeah, city was yeah, it? Yeah, I was in Saigon yeah. down, down in the South, um, I missed the spot, like how you move from Japan, from mm. this little town to then Saigon to Vietnam. What what was the trigger for that move? Just a call, can you help me with with the Vesper? Yeah, the, no, the trigger really was that I had been in, I had been in Japan for a year. Yeah. And I was teaching English, but it's it's not really a career when you're when you're, you know, working for an hourly wage, yeah. teaching English. Uh, at least not for somebody in their forties, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I felt that I needed to to go after and do something a little bit more. Um, so when I was traveling through Vietnam, um, and I and I ran into my friend who pitched to me this idea of, of starting a tour company, <clears throat> I also at the same time realized that there was an Australian university in Saigon, one of the biggest offshore campuses in the hemisphere that was um, RMIT University. And RMIT, of course, has a big, you know, their home base is here in Melbourne. Yes. And they've got a massive campus in Saigon. And uh, I went over there just to see what they had and what they had available. And they were just starting a uh, a communications program, a professional communications program. And they were, turns out, they were looking for somebody with just my qualifications. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I had worked in uh, as in journalism and I had done a little bit of, uh, I'd spent a few years working in big special events, citywide special event production. Um, they wanted somebody who could teach visual language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was able to do that. And so I, I spent several years teaching visual language and also working on the, you know, the, the topic of my book, which was uh, about um, the differences in, Digital culture and internet culture between lots of the Asian cultures and and the and the and the West, Western cultures, which is something I'm still really interested in and uh, still teaching. So the differences between Western and Asian culture. Yeah, and yeah. that's what you do in your book. Well, that's the the book that I was working on, and that book is still being worked on. But um, I've been I've been teaching that and and consulting in that for uh, quite a few years now, and yeah, it's it's the idea that. Um, you know, 
Asian people, and you know, I don't want to generalize about Asian people because yeah. obviously it's it's not monolithic. There's yeah. every single culture is as different as all the European uh, countries have different cultures. You, you can't you can't uh, um, generalize about European culture any, any, any uh, just as easily. But I wish we could. Be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating the way that um, Asian people, for for lots of reasons, part of it is because they came to the internet. Most countries in Asia came to the internet much later than many Western countries did, mm -hmm. for various reasons. Um, other reasons is because they're very collectivist, um, uh, and uh, there's also a, a big Confucian background for for many of these um, countries. And lots of them, of course, have um, very rigid ideas about controlling information. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them are just idiosyncratic ways of coming at it. You know, you have um, in Korea, it, it, it's, it's a massively popular thing to watch uh, young men and women eat massive quantities of food. People will live stream this and they make a living on doing this. Mm -hmm. um, it's fascinating. Or you could look at the way that uh, internet dating, you know, with just 10 years ago, people, I think, were a little bit hesitant to talk any, anywhere in the world about, you know, having an online profile, a dating profile. Today, it's kind of standard, but in in you could look at any country in Asia, and they're going to have very different ways of, of thinking about internet dating. In India, for example, you know, internet dating is can't be done with you, you sign up the two people but at the same time the parents have to sign up too because they have to be the chaperone mm -hmm. to anybody any conversation between any two perspective and it's not about dating either in india it's about matchmaking for marriage mm -hmm. there is no dating you know mm -hmm. um in 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 a place like china uh, dating, you, you have to wade through thousands of fake profiles because all of them are trying to scam you um to, just to try to find the one that might be an actual real person. So, so what have you done there with the visual language? Visual language was uh, a lot of fun for me because it's such. People tend not to not to realize they tend to take for granted, and you probably know this more than even more than I do. People tend to take for granted how vision works and how how important um, the semiotics and. Uh, and, and, and all those sorts of things are because we, we see stuff every day um, and, we, and we don't take the time to really interrogate what we see and why we, why we attach messages to what we see and how that works. So it was, it was a mixture of elements of design mm -hmm. and um, also a lot of talk about uh, the way that messages and ideology and semiotics and symbols are embedded in um, everyday objects and messages, particularly in the media, um, whether that's in, you know, Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones or in advertisements that we see every day or billboards that you see when you're driving down the road. So this is something, what, what your book is about, this is a question I have in my head for for a long time, like how how does the... How how does those symbols work in different cultures differently? I give you an example. Uh, we don't have to go in other culture. Let's go by age. If I show my daughter, um, I do a stick like a illustration drawing of a telephone box. Let's do a nice blue, a red one from London. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like she would ask, "What is that? Mm. What is it for?" Mm. 
we have actually, I have a, remember that my wife and I were walking down the street in Hamburg and we saw this telephone box there in yellow in Germany, or once upon a time. Yeah. And they, she was looking at it, mom, what's that? What is that for? Yeah. So exactly, it's like, because mom had an iPhone, right? So why you, you ever would need these right. plastic boxes on the street? This crazy, so idea. crazy yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, so, it's go, I'm sorry. Yeah, go, no, yeah, no, the, the icon was like this. So yeah. yeah, or the telephone, like you have this, this cord wired thing mm. um, as, the, as the current Picablo pictogram. But I think in a, in a couple of years, it's, it's the, it's the, a, a square with an iPhone dot yeah. with the home button. Yeah. This is the new telephone icon. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, yes. it, isn't this just what Apple and uh, and other companies have gone through is to try to get rid of these maybe outdated and obsolete uh, symbols and icons? You know, the the actual desktop looks like a, a desktop, yeah. or or you know, the telephone looks like a rotary dial phone, which you know people are no longer going to recognize those. But they, they, you know, they they have a lot of symbolic meaning for us in so many ways and i i'm fascinated by the way that that vision and and works both at a physiological level and at a you know mental and cognitive level where we associate all these different kinds of meanings with whether it's colors or you know shapes or um uh, gestalt and you know different different ways of, of thinking about how how things work in proximity to each other um, and and most people don't have any knowledge of that Th they know it at an intuitive level mm -hmm. because they recognize it but they don't understand why it is true and I I loved talking to you know students about that and explaining that to them and seeing that little passage of that revelation of, of of understanding, you know, what go across their face when they realize that, oh yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, very human driven, like very a lot. You you connected with a lot of different cultures and different people. Like, what then brought you to human centered design? I think it was the and and system thinking. Maybe you can explain yeah. what that is. Like, well, systems thinking. We had an interesting day at the. At the conference yesterday, where Greg was—I mean, uh, where, where Craig was talking about system thinking—and he said there really is no, you know, one definition that they latch onto for the conference regarding systems thinking. Um, you know, it, it could be the idea that this is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the systems in terms of global systems and a globalized system, or it could be the system of uh, of a business. Or it could be, you know, physiological systems. Whatever the system is, they didn't have any particular systems mm -hmm. in mind when they named that yeah. the conference after that. So when I when I when I named my my workshop, you know, design thinking as systems thinking, I was thinking of the system of innovation, uh -huh. the full system of innovation, which is really. Or, or creative problem solving, however you want to. They're the just, same. Just to, to stay for a moment with the definition, like um, so, systems thinking as one. But then you like you mentioned human-centered design and design thinking. Yeah. What is that compared to each other? Well, they're really the same thing. All right. Design thinking, uh, um, human-centered design. Uh, probably design thinking gets a lot more traction in media, and people probably hear a lot more about design thinking. Um, for whatever reason, that's the phrase that most people tend to be writing about. Um, I'm not, I'm not crazy about design thinking because 
um, the the phrase the, the 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 phrase itself. Um, I prefer human centered design, um, and well, they're for all intents and purposes it's the same thing. I just like human centered design because it has the word human in it, and that's what this is all about. It's creating solutions in the service of people, because that's what everything's you know that, that's what we're doing. If we're if we're not creating a service in the service of, a solution in the service of people, then you have to wonder who are we creating it for. Yeah, um, and human centered design is the idea that we are putting people, our users, our customers, our stakeholders, whoever those people are, at the very center of what we are creating, that we are creating it with their needs and values and beliefs and experiences in mind. And we start with them. So I went I went to another workshop where we where we basically it was about what's your purpose in life and what they what they came up with was like you start with the why and the why connects line with with the with your feeling and like when i think about what we did in your workshop it's really connection like with the emotional reaction with how you feel mm, yes and um so if i'm not completely wrong we we, we um how, like we started in this way right yeah yeah I mean, to, to create anything, to create it, to, to solve any problem, to create any kind of an innovation, to, to, to create any solution that exists for people, you first want to understand the people that you're creating that for. And the better you understand them, the better your solution is going to fit what they need. What happens far too often is that the people who are doing the creating, whether that's a new product or a new service or a new system or um, you know anything, they assume that they understand the needs of the people, and they're almost always wrong, unless they spend a lot of time talking to those people and really, as we say, walking a mile in their shoes, empathizing with those people, then it's very difficult for any of us to really connect with the needs, especially the, the unspoken needs uh, of people. Um, What is the unspoken needs? The unspoken needs are, we, we, we can't, none of us, we can't always articulate what it is that we need, especially if it's, if you're talking about a new, you know, creating new value for people. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for us to imagine a product or a service that would meet our needs because we're, not everybody is an innovator. All we can talk about is what what's not meeting my needs or how things are working well for me or how things are not working well for me. Henry Ford was really famously talked, said that, you know, he, he talked down about the idea of, um, of talking to people about what they needed when he created the model T Ford. He said, if I had asked people what they needed, he said, they would have told me they need a faster horse. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly right. They would have. If the only question that he had for them was what do you need? they would have said a faster horse, right? Because that's the only frame of reference that they knew. So the key, of course, is not asking people what they need, but understanding people's lives, their lived experiences, getting, getting in there. And if, and if Henry Ford and other people would have done that, um, you know, he, he very successfully, of course, created the automobile. But if he had really done the kind of ethnographic research that we do in human-centered design, what he would have discovered is that people needed to go faster. They didn't need a faster horse. They needed to go faster. He 
very fortunately happen upon the innovation to that. But what happens is with most innovations, people tend not to ask that question. They ask people, what do you need? And people say, oh, I need more of this kind of product. But that is not where innovation happens. Incremental innovation happens, but radical innovation, the kind of innovation that you, that you see from, you know, with the iPad or, or, or all, all kinds of, there's a million examples out there, that happens by anticipating needs that people don't even know they need. All right. Patrick, I, I just, why do you say Henry Ford? I, I just have an idea what we could do. I, like often you have the different um, steps in how you go through a, like a um, human-centered design. You have the problem space, like this this um, diamond shape, and then you have the solution space you come later to. And there's this, feels like many steps in that, like how you go from step by step into coming to a solution or maybe then to a, an innovation at the end. Yeah. It's like... <clears throat> Let's take Henry Ford. Mm -hmm. Let's take his horse, faster horse problem. Uh -huh. What would like if we, if you would be around this time and with your knowledge of today as a as a human centered design specialist, like teaching that to many people? Yeah. Uh, from you, do I spell it right? Uh, spell it right? Yeah. Luma Institute. The Luma Institute. Luma Institute. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. I put it in the show note. Yeah. Um, so, how would you have started with him, mm. or maybe with his team? We probably need more than one person. That's an interesting. <laughs> that's it's an interesting hypothetical. Let's go. Yeah, um, I, I think what we would do is we would we would begin by, um, you know, thinking about transportation in general. You know, what what are the what are the challenges with transportation in general, and you know, of course, we would. I, I guess we would want to start by thinking about framing the problem, um, and. And you mentioned the this double diamond design, um, the, the the design double diamond, and that's a that's a good way of thinking about human centered design. Is um, it is a it's sort of two diamonds next to each other. On, on the left side of that, you have the problem space, and the problem space is something that's really really important. Not many people pay enough attention to understanding exactly what the problem is. Well, I'm guilty of that always. Sure, we are. Just, I mean... We, I'd like to solve problems. Let's try on. Yeah, what, what, what most people tend to do, and it's natural, is to jump straight into solution mode. They think they understand the problem, and so, bam, let's go straight to solutions. Without spending the time to, to really fully understand the problem and all the aspects of the problem itself. And human-centered design really asks us to spend as much time understanding the problem as we do in creating solutions for the problem because it's so very important. So Henry Ford has just accepted the Outlook invite this time of this of this age. Right, okay. You have as much time as you need. When you go into the workshop and you want to explore this, mm. like really what's under the hood there. What is so the, to speak, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the... How do you start them with a the crowd? Like um, you, you start, you start imagining, understanding who all the stakeholders are. Yep. Um, in this, and and the stakeholders are often going to be a, a much wider number of, of of kinds of people than than you imagine. Um, certainly, it, it may be the the, the people who are the, the customers or who you might think of as, as the users, the people who might um, buy whatever product it is that you are, but. It's important to remember that when we're creating a new service or a new product or, or any kind of solution, that that thing is going to live in an ecosystem of support and people who have 
that, that touch on it and impact on it at all different levels. Um, it doesn't exist only in this nice little vacuum where there's the user and the designer. There's many more people involved who play a, a role in this ecosystem. And, and for it to work perfectly, it needs to work for all those people, not just the people who are, say, buying the automobile, but the people who are providing um petroleum for it, the people who are servicing the automobile, the people who are creating laws and regulations for the automobile. I mean, this in, you know, if we're talking about automobiles, that's an incredibly complex ecosystem of stakeholders, which, you know, it really didn't exist at the time that Henry Ford was, so was imagining this. Just to clarify, it's not just the customer right. who buys the car and uses the car. Right. It's also like the petrol station. This yeah. is a stakeholder who provides the petrol later or the mechanic or other people around the car, right? Yeah, yeah. Even when those people don't completely exist yet, and, you know, you can yeah. sort of make, you can look at, at the introduction of the iPod and iTunes, which completely disrupted the the way that music was produced and, and and marketed and distributed and listened to in the early 2000s, maybe in a similar fashion. Um, when Steve Jobs was imagining a new ecosystem for music, it would have been easy just to create a new MP3 player because there were lots of MP3 players out at the time that he created the iPod. They were just badly produced and they were difficult to use and the, yep. their user interface was awful. And... Um, but rather than just you know create an incremental by by focusing on on price or features which is sort of a, a race to the bottom he decided to focus on creating more value for that and and asked about how can we how can we 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 rethink the whole the whole role that music and and personal music plays in the system and as a result that ecosystem is much much bigger today than it was back then um, but you begin by understanding what people need mm -hmm. and you talk to the people. And if I'm Henry Ford, um, uh, you know, I'm not trying to sound, um, too hubristic here, but, um, the first place you want to start is by, by talking to people and finding out what their needs are and true ethnographic research, which involves not just doing interviews, but it involves contextual inquiry, you know, um, asking people to, to, to spending some time with people as they go from one place to the other on, mm -hmm. maybe it's a horse and carriage. Maybe it's on a, on a donkey. Maybe it's, um, back then on a bicycle. How do you get from point A to point B and talk to me about this? And you know, w what works about this for you and what doesn't work for you? Um, it's doing it yourself. It's, it's, it's literally walking in someone else's shoes. It's experiencing for the, for this, this, system for yourself because sometimes that's the only way we can really understand it that's how we can best understand it so was this like i'm not sure how that was called in the workshop that you run what was the beginning there was it an empathy like not a stakeholder or well we, we just started with we in our workshop we just did interviews but we could have done right. a stakeholder map yeah which is visualizing all the possible people who are involved in this system um then interviewing all different kinds of stuff. Yeah, th then you would interview those people. Shoes, mm -hmm. Like, and to know yeah. what they really... What Do they lots really of are. real ethnographic research to yeah. understand, and you collect a lot of data that way, a lot of really valuable information. And then you've got this raw data, and there's lots of tools and techniques for 
making sense of that where what you're looking for is insights that you didn't know before. Mm-hmm. What did you not know before? Because that's going to tell you where there's an opportunity to create new value. Um, and that's what human-centered design is about. It's about creating new value. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's where innovation happens, is creating new value. So then uh, from there, how do you facilitate a, the group of Henry Ford in the next step? Mm. Like now we have <clears> the <throat> stakeholder map. We have done the interviews. They walked away. They have done all the research and they met all the um, owners of the horses or maybe the new petrol station owners that we have invented just right now and the oil industry. So, and we mapped this all out mm. and now, um, how do we start then? Well, you've have, you'd have, you've had, hopefully at this point, a really good understanding of wh- how people use existing technologies to move from one place to the other and what, you know what what works for them in that in that sense and and where they feel that they're it's not working for them you know what 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 they need um and also what's really important here is what their values are because values are incredibly important and this is something that changes from culture to culture um values and 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 needs are very closely combined and and related but you can't chuck in a uh, a solution that conflicts with people's values no matter how brilliant the solution is it's not going to work and so it's really important to understand people at, th- at that very basic level as well as just as just the needs um uh you know a great example i guess would be back in the early 20th century the american government um feeling i guess maybe a little bit chagrined over its treatment of the american indians um, was uh, n- working with a, a group of Native Americans in um, California called the Mina Tribe. And the Mina Tribe, um, the women of the Mina Tribe sat around this huge stone circular um, block and they ground their um, the flour. They ground the wheat in the flour. Yeah. And they did this in this huge circle in, you know, really Stone Age conditions where they would pour it into a little hole in the stone and take another stone and grind that wheat down into the flour. And the um, the engineers and the other people um, working at, at, with the government at that time said, we can make this so much better. We will just get them state-of-the-art steel uh, grain grinders yeah. and give everybody one. And it, it's going to make things perfect for everybody. And... Um, of course, what happened was they introduced these steel and, and the women ignored them. They, they had no interest in using them. And they were, they were perplexed. They couldn't figure out why the women would not want to use these much more efficient, beautiful, state-of-the-art flower grinders. And what, you know, why would that be? And the obvious answer, of course, is that th- sitting around in that circle along that big stone thing fulfilled many other needs needs absolutely. that weren't met by the the steel thing well, i just right? imagine like a like a almost like a meditation like yeah. circle where you just sit there with your tribe it's maybe yeah. a very fulfilling situation Incre- anyway. you know, yeah, it, it's like a campfire situation yeah you know where they're telling stories they're yeah. talking about the gossip of the day it yeah. fulfills all these social functions that were utterly overlooked by somebody who thinks, oh, here's a, just a, this fancy piece of technology that's going to solve everything. And it's funny how often 
I think that even today you find people in Silicon Valley imagining and, and, and thinking that a piece of technology is going to solve all these social problems without really understanding the full depth of what's happening and why people use certain tools the way that they do. Technology alone is not, is not going to solve or, or fill needs that people have. Um, it really needs to be done with an understanding. Not, I'm not saying technology is, is bad or that it doesn't fulfill needs, but too often it's dropped into, uh, you know, it's dropped into uh, an ecosystem without fully understanding why and how people do what they do. So, I'm complete makes sense and really, really ex interesting. I'm, I'm just wondering, like, um, for our people like facilitators who will listen to us right now, it's like when I. When I explore, like when I map out, I do this interviews. We had this interview in the room in this workshop. As a uh, when you have then, it's like how do you start the post-it work, or how do you start capturing those? Mm. Like um, in in visual facilitation, we use like the whole walls mm. of the room, uh, bringing information up that we can refer back to it, and uh, we can then point like this fl cluster there, or this this this. You remember this conversation around this? Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how you basically get to this con like diversion and then later like conversion thinking like in, yeah. in in this process we now we explored all the the needs of those and we understand every stakeholder's needs and and uh, now what where how we get from there to the next step yeah well since we we We've talked to a lot of people, you know, and yep. say we, we've we've got all this raw data yep. in notes and all kinds of other formats that we and we have to figure out how to how to look at that data in a way that it begins we, we begin seeing patterns in it because those patterns right. are going to tell us where the insights are, and that's where the tool that we used for that, which is one of of several, but it's pretty helpful, is one called Rose Thorn Bud, where we're we're taking three different colored post-it notes. And we're categorizing every aspect of what we saw and what you guys did in those interviews as either a rose um, that is on the on the red post-it, um, that, and that's going to be a positive uh, a positive aspect of something that they liked about going to the movies. Um, or it could be a thorn, which is the blue post-it note, and that's going to be something negative, mm -hmm. right? Something uh, warm feedback. Uh, sorry, uh, cool feedback, where the rose is going to be warm feedback. And so you have those two. And there's a third where we, we, we talk about it being a, a bud, and that's like on, on the rose, the one that's kind of about to bloom into a rose. It means it's an opportunity. And it's something that we noticed in the data that is not necessarily good or bad, but it's, it suggests possibility. So this is something you listen to between the lines? Yeah. You capture like, yeah. you, maybe it even is not aware of, himself right just, yeah all right get it. one example that i saw in we were talking about innovating around cinema experiences when you guys were talking to people about their you were interviewing everybody about their experience of going to the movies yeah. and a, a bud that i that i noticed that was a perfect example of a bud was um they wrote it down on a little green post-it note and it said when they're at the movies they miss the experience of, uh, of of being able to talk with the family about what's happening on the screen. They miss that sense of connection with the other people. Because you're very much in your own world. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, and also, you know, there's this social 
restrictions against talking with other people in the middle of a movie, you know, because you're going to be disrupting the other people around you. But that's really interesting because, yeah, sure, we do. When we're all watching TV at home, we don't feel those restrictions. We have this sense that we can talk with the people next to us and comment on it and scream and and, and whoop and... and, and um, and make all kinds of commentary on it. And that's part of the joy of that communal experience of watching TV at home, which this person was saying they miss that when they go to the movies. It's not a bad thing about the movies. It's not a good thing, but it's a but. It's been, you, that's interesting. You, are, you completely make sense to me. Because I like when I lived in, um, in my hometown where I grew up in Wuppertal, in my early days, we, we were regular going to sneak previews. So we were like a small tribe of people, let's say 10, 15 people. We didn't know what movie we watched, but we were we just belonged together. It's just like the hardcore movie watchers, right? Yeah, they, they yeah. Like the ones who go every Wednesday for the preview. And sometimes we had a blockbuster, like became one of the... But this one, if it was boring, we had like very entertainment comedian-style right, people yeah. just talking about the yeah. movie and basically like doing it the, yeah. like a pre-director commentation yeah yeah and it was absolutely amazing so, so you have this it makes complete sense it's like stand-up comedian cinema right when it's so, also so that's a that's a great example of a of there's an opportunity there yeah and sure it doesn't fit into the existing way that movies work right okay just because movies work the way that they do and they've worked this way for 50 years does not mean that they're there's no way to change that because look, you know, that was the way I set this up was movie, you know, attendance at movie cinemas is, is dropping precipitously. It's going down very quickly. They're going to have to figure out how to reimagine what they do and reimagine their value proposition and reimagine everything about what they do in the age of streaming video and social media. How do they do that? Well, it's to start by looking for opportunities like that. How can you recreate? And I don't know the answer, but how can you recreate that 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 um that condition that that sense of of communal and you know being able to talk with people um in a movie cinema all right so now we got the goods and the bads mm -hmm. and like the very between the lines diamonds you, you're seeing like you're, yeah you're, you're looking for you, you've, yeah. you've got these insights that that suggest to you unmet needs so at this point, you feel like you have a really good understanding of exactly what the problem is and, and what the opportunities are. Because for you know, human-centered designers, problems are all opportunities. So what I do next with Henry Ford or with the cinema owner? At this they, point, at, at this like point you begin imagining, yeah. you, begin, you begin brainstorming and, and doing other techniques for um, wide divergent thinking, coming up with many possible solutions for for this one or or maybe a, a couple of problems um, that that you're solving for the diversion where you open up your mind and look left and right as right. much as you can and yeah. the, the tendency for most of us is we see a problem we got we think there's a solution to this there's one really good solution and we tend to focus on what is that one solution mm -hmm. and that's not the most effective way to come at this. Um, we spent all this time understanding what the problem is. It's, it's important that we spend just as much time trying to come up with many possible solutions to, what the, the, to, 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 to how to create something for, for, this, for this problem or this challenge. 
And the best way to do that is to come up with many, many possible solutions. And so the exercise that we did was a yeah. creative matrix. And it's an alternative to brainstorming. Brainstorming can be really helpful when it's done right. It's just, you know, so rarely is it done right. So let's let's uh, put the creative matrix, like the, the X and the Y up. What was mm. there? So we, after we after we had the clusters, yeah, we've we've got a we create a matrix on a on a piece of butch paper, of uh, four four or five columns and five rows, and uh, if you look at the top of those uh, those columns, we we have categories related to people. It could be persona profiles, it could be different kind of uh, different kind of people, or it could be um, different uh opportunities or challenge statements that we set ourselves that are related to the you know this one overall sort of overarching uh design challenge that we have and down on the the left the 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 rows in other in other words we're creating different enabling possibilities for that maybe it's um facilities and environments maybe it's uh social media maybe it's wearable technology maybe it's um uh, legislation um, th there's, you know, any number of different ways you can think about how are we going to enable uh, solutions for this. I chose it sort of arbitrarily four for the this particular one that seemed to match it most, and they had to do with f facilities, and environments. Um, I think it was um, internal internal uh, policies, uh, uh, digital technologies was another one because there's obviously and different services that we could do in there and then the key with the creative matrix is to 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 use those constraints the constraints of your your ideating at the intersection of these rows and these columns and you've got these this seven, this grid of rows and columns and at each cell you are giving yourself the opportunity i'm going to come up with an idea that combines how are we going to use technology and digital apps, for example, to create a solution that reimagines the value proposition of what movies do in this day and age? Um, so let me recap. Like we, we have done like interviews, we mapped out the stakeholders, we understand the whole ecosystem. Then with the interviews that we have done, we got this good bats and the diamonds, like the very, how did you say, what is it called? This uh, we call it a creative matrix. Or do you no, mean the double like diamond? The, no, I mean the, the red, the green, and the yellow post. We call that a rose thorn bud. Rose thorn bud. Yeah. And you have done this. And now you basically stop and you turn around the page. You start fresh mm -hmm. with this creative matrix. Mm -hmm. And on the top you have made up personas or made up uh, like challenge statements challenge statements mm -hmm. and uh, what was an example for one like uh w well we like to start our challenge statements with the words how might we because how might we is a really powerful way of of orienting yourself towards solutions because how obviously orients you towards solutions might suggests not one possible solution but many possible solutions and it's a non-judgmental way of thinking yeah, about all these solutions yeah and the we of course is collaborative so we we talk about um how might we reimagine the value proposition of movie cinemas in the age of streaming media in the age of streaming media and then then on the other x on the on basically the horizontal lines you mm -hmm. had like four different aspects like for your 
um, in terms of facility or in terms of digital enabling technology, solutions, like enablers, like how mm-hmm. we do this. Yeah, and then in this, in basically in the crisscross of this, and whether in the in the crossing and in the intersection right, of the those, intersections. yeah, you everyone was working for himself they were working individually and that that's that's an, well, i was surprised that's yeah. what Can makes you... it different from brainstorming and, and and you know one of the the troubling things with brainstorming that tends to happen doesn't have to happen but it sometimes does is you know group think or people you know some people just decide to, to sit it out and not contribute at all or you know people are afraid of speaking up because they're gonna feel foolish because they have to say what they their idea in front of the room or even though brainstorming is understood supposed to be you know uh, non-judgmental everyone comes up with any idea you know in practice it tends to be very judgmental you know human beings are problem solvers and we tend to poke holes in ideas that don't that you know judging helps yeah us to speed you, up there's all this thinking. judgment happening yeah and you've got somebody at the front of the room with a white marker and they're writing down the ideas that they that that person chooses to write down and then you know they just f- sort of don't write down the ones that they don't think are the good ideas so let's let's stop here because what i what i there's a very interesting thing there's no there's what you say it's just something where it's the opposite from what happens with people who come to the picablo training so i like one of the things we do is we probably create leaders on the whiteboard mm-hmm. because you people who maybe not so extroverted and and not you i have many people in my my friends who learn that they are quite strong when they explain their ideas on the whiteboard yeah and it can lead to a big crowd of people just by um having a whiteboard marker in the hand and having this new confidence because they maybe not have a good strong voice yeah but they are very clear have a very clean handwriting and very logical way of visualizing things and the yeah. people are amazed by that and they lead through that but this is an there's trap yeah there is in, a in, trap. in this brainstorming situation where you actually have actively to step back yeah that's a beautiful point yeah. to make it can be very helpful being in front of a room and, and, yeah, and, sure. and but but it comes with its downsides as well and that's why we make this particular exercise an individual one where um, we, we constrain it. Um, you know, you're, you're ideating at the intersections of these things, and you're also doing it individually and in silence. You're not, you, you know, everyone is so focused on creating their own ideas, writing those down on the post-its, and getting it up on that board in the short amount of that time that they have, which is the other constraint. We, we keep it very we make sure that people don't have half an hour to do this. Because when people have half an hour, they want to make every idea perfect. Can I do it before the break or after the break? Do you know this question? So I do don't, give yeah. A, you, you, give a group, you give a group a task yeah. and you give too much time. And right. say, like, oh, can I go to the loo? Can I go to the... I'm yeah. coming back after a coffee yeah. and then mm-hmm. I do it. Yeah. So it's like, this, oh, the time was too long. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you should have a break anyway. But like you made it very clear that you have just three minutes or ten something. minutes we gave people ten, ten minutes. minutes and this actually like i was in the group i, I like I, I felt it animated a challenge yeah well we, a competition between yeah. all the teams and that yeah. can be really helpful it's hard to do if you only have one team but if you have more than one team you turn it into a competition and fo- to make sure that everyone understands look the point here is to create as many ideas as you possibly can they are not we don't we're not looking for great ideas we're not looking for the best ideas what we're aiming for here is quantity, 
not quality, yeah. right? And that's, that is the essence of divergent thinking. We're coming up with many possible ideas. We're not only thinking, I, I'm only allowed to come up with the, the most perfect ideas I can come up with, because that is, that is really bad for creativity. If, if you're only allowed to come up with the best possible stuff, mm -hmm. that's not what creativity is based on. Mm -hmm. Creativity is really based on coming up with many possible ideas mm -hmm. and then allowing yourself to start making those connections between these crazy, unreasonable, unfeasible, implausible ideas and, and letting these sparks happen that your brain does naturally. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to get into that mode, but we find that this is one of the ways that helps people get into it. I'm just wondering, I I'm, can't I'm recap, what have we done afterwards? We well, have this challenge, and, and you actually get the, like just an amazing challenge. Mm -hmm. I really would like to highlight it. On each post-it, you ask the people also to draw on, yeah. like a pictogram, yeah. like a little stick figure to visualize yeah. the idea, which was a challenge on top. And um, so that's a great, great way of... Yeah. like Give them an extra point if they have a sketch on everything. Give an extra point yeah. on a sketch on it, and it's actually activating their visual mind, which yeah. is problem-solving, yeah. big-picture thinking. So, like, with that, you just help them, basically give them a hand to go into this, like, big, think big mode of, of crazy ideas. Yeah. So Because thinking time, verbally and thinking visually activates, different as parts you know, very brain. different parts yeah. of your brain and very different parts of your creative mind as well. Yeah. And... Uh, again, while people are working individually, they also are seeing what other people are sticking up on the board. And we like to talk about the idea of um, fostering misunderstanding or fostering mis misconception. Because when, when, when somebody sticks a, uh, a post-it up there that has a sketch on it, that lights up ideas in somebody's brain who sees it. Even if they misunderstand what that sketch is, it's still valuable mm -hmm. because it makes them think of something interesting. Yeah. The brain tries to make sense of this. Right. That I cannot It doesn't matter if they understand what the sketch is for. That's irrelevant. Yeah. What matters is that it makes them think of a new idea. Mm -hmm. And then... What is the next step from there? Now well, we the next step the from challenge. there, yeah, we, we've got, we've got, we've got literally hundreds of ideas. As you saw, yes. a team of seven people would create, a you know, easily more than a hundred ideas in ten minutes. So you had summed it up. We were over four hundred or something. W with the six teams that we had working, we had almost four hundred and fifty ideas in ten minutes. In ten minutes, right? And of course, those are not all. Great idea. They're not. They're not all feasible ideas. There, some of them are are outrageous ideas, and some of them are are silly and, and and playful, and they're too expensive, or they can't be engineered, or they're beyond technical, you know, capacity. So the point at this, what we want to do is now, you know, that was a very time boxed exercise. Now we have the luxury of looking at all these ideas and allowing further exploration of them with a little bit more leisurely time to look at them and go so are we now on the on the edge on the on the corner of the diversion thinking yeah are we now yeah now we, we're the at diamond? the point we're going to start thinking about we're going to be thinking convergently yes we're going to be you know focusing instead of flaring yeah and and that's a really important aspect of human centered design is 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 both divergent and convergent thinking And separating those kinds of thinking, not doing it at, at, at the same time. They're both incredibly valuable, um, but we want to separate them. So how do you bring them to conversion, like to bring them down 
focusing them? Like, do you just pick the the manager picks the five ideas he likes? Well, how, what is the best? There's there's a variety of ways of doing that. Yeah. Um, you've got these hundreds of ideas out there. Probably the, the, the most effective and the, and the most worthwhile thing that you can do f at this point is have people just talk about them. Um, one way of, of, of sort of narrowing the field of these hundreds is, and this is a technique that Google uses in all of their internal meetings, um, it's called the red dot method, or sometimes we call it visualizing the vote. And there's, you can do it in any number of ways, but it's basically giving everybody a visual way of identifying what, you know, may, maybe the, the two or three or four of their favorite ideas. So you just grab a marker. They could draw a little red, red dot on, yeah. on the ones that they want to choose, or maybe they stick a little red uh, sticky on it. Um, the, the key with that is to allow everyone to look at these individually by themselves and then to ask everyone to vote at the same time. And that's really important because... Well, you look in silent. You don't talking. Right. You just look and you have your marker ready. And then somebody says, okay, vote. And everyone goes at the exact yeah. same moment. Yeah. And it's probably obvious why that is. Mm -hmm. um, it's because again, to get away from this idea of groupthink or to to obviate the the need to make the highest paid person in the room happy. Yeah, it's, 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 because exactly. everyone's going to wait to see where that person votes and then, oh, I'll, I'll vote there too. Um, and, and we really want to vote. And I, I think I want to point this out. I think there is not actually um, something that is really like following the, the manager or some, in some way. It's just he makes a dot there And that makes me naturally looking at this idea. And this like, person is smart. It's actually not so crazy, this idea. It's, it's a smart idea. Yeah. I like it too. Yeah. Just yeah. for like my brain sure. just It's human me. nature. I belong to this guy as well. Sure. I belong to the idea. So yeah. I want to be part of that. It's so human I'm, nature. Yeah. And so you, you try to get everyone to do it at the same time. And, um, and so what you end up with is a, is a much smaller number uh, of, of these ideas. And that doesn't mean that immediately we are discounting all the other ideas what it creates and again this is all of this is very visual and that's for a purpose is it creates sort of a heat map of where the the most interest is in these ideas and it's a it's a point to begin discussing that okay you can look and see where all the red dots are and you've got this heat map a visual heat map of where the most interesting ideas are because you just you we are still on the grid right We are still on this on this matrix, and you see now all the dots is in this intersection between this challenge and this, let's say, um, environment yeah. uh, as a as a how like different environments, and you see all the dots accumulating around this yeah posted cluster uh, right, area. Right, right. So this is the heat mapped hotspot. Exactly. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Or several of those, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, again, that doesn't mean that we are we are flushing all the others down the toilet. Yeah. Um, th this is just a way for us to start steering the conversation in more valuable places. There's other ideas out there that maybe we take those and start adding them to others and refining them and you know putting them together and seeing how we can uh, mix them up. Um, it's just a way to sort of start moving toward uh, narrowing down the field of ideas that we have. And eventually you get to maybe, I don't know, 10, 12, it depends on the situation where you would have those ideas and you could move those over and say, okay, these are the ideas that we could imagine actually moving forward with. These are the ones that we could actually see working toward. And now, if I'm right, we are on the bottom 
roughly from our diamond yeah at the center at the finish of the problem statement we flared down yeah and and we are now sort of a we're we're on that we're on that second double uh, of the two double diamonds now we're at the point where we need to develop these ideas a little bit further we need to start really thinking about it's how now, these ideas now might work now we step into the solution mode we're we're still in solution mode but now we're at the point and this is an incredibly important part of human centered design which is where we want to start testing these ideas and that is just as important as the the user research sorry just to clarify we were in the problem space mm -hmm. coming up diversion then narrowing it down mm -hmm. and when we have this heat map these good ideas mm -hmm. are we now at the end of the first diamond and now no, we're, we're, we're in the second double diamond the, all right the, already the, the, the separation between those two diamonds is the challenge statement all right that left diamond is all about understanding the problem yeah the right diamond is all about solving for the problem part of solving for the problem is coming up with ideas the other part of solving for the problem is testing yep those ideas creating prototypes building with our hands failing with those prototypes creating those prototypes putting them in front of people asking people to work with them and test them and try them out and use them and talk about their experience with them so that we find out what's not working so that we can learn from that and change it and fix it and make it better and and testing here yeah means like you can basically use paper and sure. build a prototype just with with, yeah. with paper and glue yeah and and it, show it to someone there's hundreds of ways of doing that if we're talking about a, if we're talking about an actual physical product yeah paper prototyping is one way of doing it um you know any kind of you know we might call it rough and ready prototyping which is just uh approximating what something looks like because you're you're not testing the entire experience almost never are you testing the entire experience you're testing one tiny little aspect because Anything that we create is filled with assumptions. We assume that this is going to work this way. We assume people are going to understand what this button means. We assume that all of these hundreds of little moving parts are going to make sense to people and that that is what they want. All of those are built on dozens or even hundreds of assumptions. We've got to test those assumptions. We can't test them all at once. We, we tend to test them one or a few at a time is the best way to do that so you iterate your way and you're building uh, your way to to a a product or a service or a system that's perfectly uh, matched to the needs of the people because you're asking them to to tell you so it's not limited to just drawing on paper or to to use a software or so you could even like say we, we act this out we yeah, improvise absolutely this. yeah um that's that that's a very common way of prototyping is right. you know uh acting it out and 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 doing those sorts of uh role-playing nice uh games yeah um, like it could be storyboarding it could be creating a little thumbnail sketches and asking people to look at that and to imagine it's You know, sometimes it's holding a a frame up in front of your in front of your face, and pretending to be somebody who's on a on a tablet. You know, nice. Yeah. Um, th th there's so many ways that you can do this, and cheap ways. And the really the gr really great thing about these tests is that, um, it's surprisingly, um, n 
uh, easy to to identify all the problems with a given uh, with a given prototype with a very small number of people. Um, with only if, if you're putting a, a prototype in front of six or seven or eight people, you're probably going to identify eighty to ninety percent of the problems that most people are going to find with it just with those eight people. So it doesn't have to be a time-consuming experience, and it doesn't have to be expensive. So doesn't need to be the stakeholder that we had in mind in the beginning, the persona we were had the challenge statement for? It's helpful that it so, is, but it doesn't have to be. It, it, it does need to be somebody who understands those people. Yeah. And wherever possible, you do want to get actual users in front of this. But it's also helpful to get a wide variety of people in front of it because if you think about the automobile, I mean, it's a huge variety of people and every one of them uses it in a different capacity. So sticking it in front of one person and assuming that that's going to be representative of all the users is, is not true. So you do want to, but it's possible to get internal people to do this. I mean, people who are working in the organization can be very perfectly viable yep. um, users um, and usability testers. So let's assume now we have a great workshop for two, three days we had a prototype with um, paper-cutted wheels mm -hmm. with a steering wheel in the middle, and mm. we called it um, automobile okay. or car, and Henry is quite happy with us and sees some potential there. And so what happens after that? Like, uh, is there, what is after this testing? Well, the testing is a, is a process that goes on for as long as it needs to. I mean, it's impossible to put a, a specific time limit on it. Um, but the, but it is iterative. It is cyclical. So um, you are constantly testing. You're refining. You're going through this process over and over again, and you're learning more and more and more every time you go. Only the designer and and the the people who are working on the team are going to know how long that process needs to take. Um, but the important part is that you need to start building as soon as you possibly can because. The building aspect of it, it's so much more important to be building prototypes than it is to be talking about the solution because you're going to learn infinitely more by building something and putting it in front of people than you will by theorizing over how it might work. So that process of, of testing, I mean, if you're talking about something as complex as, a, as an automobile, you know, you are also talking about a much larger system. You're talking about roads. You're talking about... Uh, legislation, you're talking about um, safety issues, you're talking about, um, you know, the, the fuel and the, the entire system that there is for, you know, making fuel and maintenance. And that's an enormous system. And I can't imagine how that must have been when Henry Ford, again, it was not the first automobile. Henry Ford's, you know, often associated with the automobile, but there were automobiles before he created it. Um, he invented the idea of mass manufacturing and the you know, um, uh, automated the system of creating mm -hmm. automobiles. Um, but, um, that's a system that, that, that evolved. Uh, he, he didn't invent that entirely any more than Steve jobs and Apple invented the idea of digital distribution of music entirely, but they did give it a good kickstart and they learned a lot. If, if you or I were to go back and look at the original iPod that was shipped we would sneer and laugh and mm -hmm. fall over thinking about how ridiculous and useless the thing was, right? Because that very first version that shipped, while it was amazing at the time, 
today we think, oh, this is no big deal. But it was important that they get that first vision and version out there because it allowed them to, even though it was on the market, they were still iterating. There was every new version took into account user feedback. They were just doing it out in the market rather than inside, um, you know, the Apple yeah, warehouses. Yeah, and, and, and your and your change as well, like your expectations are, like you can't actually go back. Like if I my first iPhone, it was amazing. It was the first one that came out, and I have still it in a drawer, and it fell into my hand when I was like cleaning up one day, and I was like, really? Yeah. It's like a very pixel, like very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very slow, and it's yeah. like took ages. Yeah. It's like, and it sells so well. It's like it was when you look at a very modern, like yeah. smartphone. Yeah. Um, so you had some, like a historical nice feeling about this device, but useful. I'm not sure. Yeah. If I lift my speed like with my mobile phone today. Sure, of course. It's like yeah. to change as well, right? It's so, like going back and playing the first version of you know Pong or something as a video game. And and like when we when we went to workshop, you did something from there where you then uh, put an X Y as yeah. well up. Yeah, and we did said, we did what we call an important difficulty matrix. Important and difficult matrix. Yeah, an importance difficulty matrix. Again, it's a, it's sort of a quad a two by two grid. Yeah. Where we plot we we take these these small number of ideas that we have. Say it's eight ideas just as a, an example. And on, on the x-axis, I would ask people to arrange those ideas um, in order relative, relative to each other um, in terms of the difficulty, I'm sorry, in terms of the impact that they would have, the importance that the idea would have. If it were implemented, what kind of impact would it have? So this is on one X. On the, on the X axis, you know, along, along, the, along the horizontal axis. All oh, right, on the horizontal, yeah. And the, the, the easiest way to do that is to, is to choose which of the two, which is the most impactful of these, yeah. however you define that. could yeah. be number of people, how often they're impacted. Um, it, 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 any, any way of imagining what impact is, is, is okay. There's no one right way to imagine that. And then on the other side, what's the least impactful? Not zero, but, you know, the least and put those put those two out at the like edges the and then yeah. arrange all the others in between those relative to those two extremes to those ends and then w once we have all those arranged we draw that y axis and it's the difficulty difficulty to implement difficulty to implement it could yep. be cost yep could be time could be the political difficulty of getting you know buy in from management to approve it it could be the engineering or the architecting difficulty it could be the coding difficulty any way that you again any way that you imagine that and you arrange you know keeping those where they were along the impact axis moving them up or down on that y axis regarding to the difficulty it is of, of creating them and then because you had like something that's very impactful but has a low cost it's like a sweet spot to start right? yeah you well down that lower left corner you're going to have things that are low ROI, but very easy to do, not a lot of impact, but very easy to do, over further on the right side, um, at, the, at the bottom right corner, you're going to have high ROI, you know, relatively easy to do and a high impact, right? That's what you want to have. Up at the top right corner, you're going to have things that are very difficult to do, but also massive payoff yep. if you can do it. And in the top left corner, you're going to have things that 
you know, are very difficult to do and the impact is not that big. So maybe that we can consider those luxuries. Why not putting them in a bin? What is it? Why is it luxury point? Well, that doesn't mean there's no value at all to it. It yeah. just means it's not one that you want to start off with. All right. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe it's maybe it's a really targeted thing for um, a very specific uh, segment of your users. Maybe it's a VIP thing for something uh -huh. that only only the 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 wealthiest or the or or some extreme user is going to be interested in. It wouldn't have to be wealthiest, but you know, it's, maybe it's for more extreme users. And from there, you have something like a vision. Yeah, you have you, something like a product idea, right? That you pick, and from there, the natural or not natural. I, I see that natural because I'm an agile coach as well. Mm -hmm. But I, from there, you start you're implementing circle like processes that you you could use like Scrum or other things like you, sure. to iterate and really yeah. like put this then out to the market. Exactly. At this point, you are well into the into agile territory where yeah. you start working in sprints. In iterating and 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 testing and developing those these ideas, um, uh, to to make sure that they're they're fit and that they're ready to be shipped, whatever that means. Voila, we yeah. went full circle from interviews, from understanding the stakeholders, to the point we are now in the process of shipping this regular yeah. to the client, to the customer, and and evolving from yeah. the first iPod to now. I'm not sure which version the iPod is now. But yeah, I'm not like either. Undefinite, yeah. Yeah, but you know the, the the really important point to keep in mind there is that this is a much more effective and efficient way of creating value than taking that big leap of faith, which is the traditional route. You know that waterfall way of doing things, which you have an idea. And you spend all these resources in implementing this idea and you stick it out in the market and you hope and pray that it works, mm. that people like it, that people buy it, that it does what it's supposed to do for the for that ecosystem. Um, and if it doesn't, you have lost a lot of money and a lot of time. And that's traditionally what people do. They take that massive risk. And what human Center design does is it eliminates almost altogether that huge risk because you're you're working your way you're iterating your way to success and by the if, if you've done it right by the time you get that system or service or product out there into the market for which it's intended you know perfectly well whether it's going to work because you have been watching it and testing it with the people for whom it's designed yeah. every step of the way yeah that's why you are so confident you just right. You have explored it enough. Yeah, yeah. Not so, you're so you're mitigating a lot of that financial risk and the and the other resources that you put into it, time and everything else. So now, as we we have a new vision of a of a product we can create, I'm I forgot to ask you in the beginning. So, when you like maybe first, what is what is the vision statement or what is the thing that Luma Institute is standing for? What, what are you doing now? I, if I'm right, like pretty much after we talk now, you fly to Singapore. Yeah. And yeah. So you, you're flying massively from A to B to Pittsburgh, I think was on the schedule. If I'm, if I saw on the website, it's like, what, what do you? Well, Luma does, they do workshops. They, Luma is focused exclusively on, equipping you know individuals and, and teams and organizations into using these 
tools and, and methodologies and helping them understand how to use human-centered design to to be more innovative, to be better at creative problem solving. Um, they're teaching people to fish. They're giving them the tools to do it themselves and, mm-hmm. you know, to giving them the resources to train their own people to do this on their own. Um, Luma really believes powerfully in this tool um, for, for, you know, making the world a better place, for improving everything. And that's, you know, the, the, the title of their book is called Innovating for People, which um, is all about, you know, uh, giving people the tools themselves to do this themselves. They're not about coming in there and looking for the, the contract um, that's going to allow them to to do the design for people. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's lots of businesses out there that are design consultancies, and they're very good at that, and, and that's what they do. And there's a great need for, for those people. But Luma is an educational uh, com- company, and what we really want to do is give people the ability to to take charge and do this themselves. And uh, I really enjoy that as I really enjoyed doing it with you guys in the group at the mm-hmm. last conference. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I, I, I saw you like how much you were completely in flow. Like it was fun to watch you. It's like really cool. Like we were absolutely full energy there. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. When, when we go like, where do you think, um, this goes like where, where human center design, like we like i often think like with visual facilitation we we teach people we basically give them back the ability to use their their drawing skills that every person naturally has with picablo we we just give them that back and allow them and make them more confident to draw mm. like with when you look at now luma institute and you you teach human center design and and basically give them the rope, like the fishing rope, mm-hmm. to to figure out ideas themselves. Like, yeah. will that become just natural, or will that become something we teach at school? So, where where do you see the future of of this area explain like going to? Back in the in the eighties, uh, people were were watching the Japanese very carefully because the Japanese seemed to have mastered the idea of quality control. Um, and, you know, uh, at the time, that was considered uh, total quality management, and we call it TQM. Today, at the, at the time, it was it was a radical new way of thinking about managing businesses and managing products and, and supply chains and, and manufacturing in general. And today, TQM is so understood to be essential and it's it's unthinkable that any management process would happen without it mm-hmm. that it's faded into the background and people don't even talk about it anymore because it's just understood that that's the only way you can actually do things uh, i think that that design thinking in the in the coming you know 10 or 20 years is going to be as similarly influential i think it's going to be it's it's going to become so commonplace because it makes so much sense and it's so obvious that it's going to fade. It's it's going to become so widely used that it's going to fade into the background to become that sort of ambient understanding of how you approach any problem. Um, it's it's really becoming much more commonplace in the U.S. right now. Um, Australia's is is playing catch up a little bit because Australia is a little bit more of a conservative business market, not quite as as a risk. Um, 
of, of thinking not as friendly toward the idea of risk as maybe the American market is, um, but it's it's still catching on. This is an incredibly interesting way to I think about um, rethinking what education is, because in in the education world, everyone's worried that kids are getting all this analytical thinking, but there's no creative training in schools and design thinking is a wonderful way to complement the analytical and critical thinking that people get is you know kids get these days which is very important but just as important as critical thinking is creative thinking and design thinking asks that people use both of those together at the same time in complement to each other and it's a great way of helping kids understand that failure is not a bad thing necessarily that failure is if if you if you approach failure properly that it's a way of learning that it's that you're that you're failing forward you know that if you if you're doing small failures and you're managing these failures then it's a very very successful way to get to where you want to be um it's a great way to help kids build empathy with other kids and that's something that kids are desperately in need of in the social media age um in the you know what people would say is uh, the me 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 selfie age having that empathy and being able to empathize with other people and what they think uh again design thinking is that's what it's about is is understanding how other people feel so i think that the education industry and and the whole sector there um would do well to incorporate design thinking into the curriculum across the board nice yeah patry which which question i haven't asked you which oh wow you would like to um I'm not sure you asked. You didn't ask. I think. I think. I think you gave me the opportunity. You gave me just enough rope to hang myself, and I did. <laughs> uh, no, I think we had a we had a great long conversation. I, I don't think I need to add any more. I'm. I probably talked too much as it is. That was absolute awesome. Thank you very much. Fantastic. It was my pleasure. Yeah. I wish you an awesome journey to Singapore. Where you fly from there? Uh, I'll come back here. I'll come back here in about a, uh, two weeks, and I'll be here for a month, and I'll go back to the U.S. and. Um, August. Yeah. So you're back in Melbourne, back in America. Yeah. You, you yep. bridge this. Right now, it's Asia. it's sort of going between the U.S. and, yeah. and Australia. My wife is in the U.S. for the time being, and I really miss her. So I'm looking forward to getting back to my, my wife. All right. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you, Marcel. High five. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast. This is, by the way, one of the longest interviews we have done in the Picabo Radio. And I'm just curious about how long should the podcast be? I really would like to hear your voice. Maybe jump onto iTunes and leave us a comment. Was one and a half hours too much or just doesn't matter as long as it's good? We really need your feedback to improve. So just leave us a comment on iTunes and give us a rating. If you like it and found it useful, then jump over on LinkedIn and share it with your friends. Tweet about it or send it on Instagram around. Whatever you find is your social media. Last but not least, if you have booked Patrick's class but still you think, I can't draw, then come to the next Picablo training. If you're in Australia or New Zealand, go over on marcelvanhoef.com and book one of my trainings with me. If you're somewhere else on the world, just jump over on picablo.com and check out one of the other 20 trainers around the world. We teach about two to 3,000 people every year. I hope you enjoy this conversation and see you next time.